0: I think I don't like silence, um, class, to be honest, but I do love awkward moments. And those tend to happen when, you know, when it's silent. And so maybe I do like silen- silence for the wrong reason. Uh, I am a huge fan of awkward moments. I really am. Like, I, 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 like I'm the guy that walks into awkward moments. Because you can always see one and you're like, this is great. I'm going to stop my conversation and I'm going to walk into this awkward moment because this is epic. And then you know, like, when you just look at people... The whole time, like, did you just hear what they said? Why would you say something like that? This is great. Um, so I, maybe I have a love-hate relationship um, with silence because I love awkwardness. But anyway, I'm ranting. Uh, we we're wrapping up uh, the book of Lamentations, and uh, it's been a, an interesting couple of weeks. Uh, and the obvious one being that the book of Lamentations is a, a book that m- not many of us. Uh, find ourselves in. Uh, I remember I did a, a quick survey when we uh, launched this service. I told people to raise their hands who had uh, ever heard a sermon on the book of Lamentations or who had ever read the book of Lamentations and the numbers were low as I expected. It's just something that we're not very comfortable doing. We, we don't want to be in those spaces. In fact, we avoid them like the plague. But I believe that we must walk through Lamenting. We must walk through the book of Lamentations, books like Lamentations, because uh, life isn't always perfect. Life is tough. Life is challenging. We often find ourselves on our knees looking to the heavens and going, Why? Why, God? Why would you allow this? Why would you permit this? Why does all of this injustice that we experience exist? We lament. The process of lamenting allows us to deal with those difficult times. And so I gave the definition in the first week, and I'm going to give it to you uh, as we wrap up, just to remind us, and maybe for those who weren't here the first week or haven't been with us for a while, just to, to hear the definition of lamenting. What is it to lament? Lamenting is a response to suffering in which one is allowed to express doubt, confusion, Frustration, and dare I say it, even outrage. Lament stems from an acute experience of pain, be it physical or emotional or spiritual. That's what it means to lament. It's to create a space where we can allow pain and frustration and doubt and confusion to breathe. And while we need those spaces and we need those times, Because if we don't, it's only a matter of time before we explode. As we look at a broken world with broken relationships, it's just a matter of time before we explode. And so we've been walking through the book of Lamentations, looking at the words of Jeremiah, writing to this broken city, communicating to them and saying, guys, this is how we should respond. This is how we should respond. And so we're going to be in chapter 5, all 22 verses. I'm not going to read it like I always do. I tend to read the passage and then pray and then we jump in. So I'm not going to do that uh, this morning because we're literally just going to walk through this chapter, verse by verse. And we're going to move through it quite quickly. I want you to know that this chapter is, is a prayer. This chapter is a prayer. Jeremiah wraps up this book by praying to God. It's still poetic, but he prays to God. And so before we jump in, permit me to pray. To pray for you, to pray for me, to pray that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine as we wrap up the book of Lamentations, as we strive to understand what it truly means to lament. So let's pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful for your word. We're thankful that it continues uh, to work uh, in our lives, that it continues to transform the individual lives of people. And so, Lord, I'm asking, I'm pleading, I'm crying out to you that you would do that this morning, that you would engage us where we are, that we would see you for who you are. Lord, I pray against any distractions here this morning as we dive into some, some difficult verses I pray against the evil one whose desires are to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, Lord, it's to that end that I ask that you stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May they be a sweet fragrance to you. God, you are our King, you are our Redeemer. Would you have your way in this place this morning? And as we move through this last chapter, would you show us our desperate need for you? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray, amen. Lamentations chapter five, verse one. The poet starts by saying, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Now, let me do a quick recap for some of us maybe who've forgotten or weren't here Let me set some context. See, what happened in 587 BC is that Babylon invaded Jerusalem. It destroyed the temple and took most of its people into exile. You can go read about this in the book of Jeremiah. Those are those who were taken into exile back to Babylon. But Lamentations is written to those who are left behind. Left behind in the ruins, in the destruction. Jeremiah writes lamentations to them, and so he he cries out in his praises, Lord, remember us, remember us, look and see our disgrace. Look and see what's happened. Look and see what has happened. This verse serves as an introduction, but as an introduction to remind us, to remind us of what's going on. Verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. See, what was once home had been turned to foreigners. This land that was promised to them, the very land that had been promised to them had now been turned over to foreigners, to strangers, this promised land. And the land was, was a tangible proof That's what it served at, this land, a tangible proof of God's covenantal relationship to his people. Remember in Egypt, if we go back in Egypt, when they were in slavery, he had promised them that he would lead them to this promised land, entering into this covenant, entering into this relationship with these people, saying, listen, I'm going to provide for you. I know times are hard and difficult, but I'm going to provide for you. And so this land, this land was tangible proof of God's promise to his people but now had been turned over to strangers, not because God had broken his promise. Don't miss it. God never breaks his promises. He never breaks his covenants. The land had been turned over to strangers because they had broken their promise to God. They had turned their eyes away from God. And so this was an implication, a consequence of their broken promise. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, Jeremiah says, but look in verse 3, it gets worse. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. What he's saying is that we are now totally helpless, totally helpless. Fathers have been taken into captivity to go and work the lands somewhere else in a foreign land. And maybe those who, who fought, they've been killed. And so they are no men. There are no fathers, no brothers. Wives have no husbands now. Totally helpless. In verse 4 he writes, We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Now they have to buy what they previously owned. Think about that for a moment. They are having to pay for what they previously owned. Even the basics. The basics. I'm not talking about fancy cars, a new swimming pool. I'm not talking about that. Just the basics bread and water. The things that they once owned. They're now having to pay for it. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. No rest. They're sleeping with one eye open every night because they're constantly under attack. Every night. Children are sleeping under their beds. Mothers are standing guard at the door, holding on to whatever they can use to protect their children. Every night it's like this. Every night. It's like this. I want you to picture this for a moment. Picture this for a moment. Pretoria in ruins. In ruins. Most of the men are gone. Widows and orphans. And, and the chaos. Every night you're having to listen to, to chaos outside. Screaming not knowing what's going on out there. You've barricaded every entrance to your home. This is what's happening in Jerusalem. This is what Jeremiah is describing. He's communicating. He's informing us that, listen, this is how bad things are. This is how bad things are. In verse 6, he says, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. To get bread enough. This is the climate, dear friends. It's rough. It's tough. It's challenging. It's frustrating. Things have changed. That's what he's saying. That we were once this prosperous city the land that God had promised to us. We were thriving and flourishing. Everybody wanted to move into Jerusalem. But because of our disobedience, things have changed. Things have changed. These are the words of a poet painting a picture of a reality. But I want us to listen to similar words this morning. I want us to listen to... The words of a poet, a 2017 poet, painting a picture of a tough reality, a particular tough reality that we face right here in South Africa. Hear these words.
1: It is said that there is a new type of apartheid in Mabune. It is an economic apartheid where people are excluded not because of the color of their skin, but because of their class. Dear Mabune. Allow me to introduce myself. I am the annoying fly in your overpriced cup of latte. I am the stubborn stain on your hipster outfit. The scandal that refuses to be fixed. I am the off-key squeak to your otherwise perfect jazz trumpet sound. I am the looming storm to your rooftop pool parties. I am the missing H in your colonial spelling of pata-pata. The black sheep of the family your first world visitors are not supposed to meet. Well, dear first world visitor, allow me to introduce myself. I am the unphotoshopped image of Africa. I am Africa untamed and unpolished, the elephant that will not leave the room to be exiled to the nearest game reserve. Maboneng is an island of privilege in a sea of crushed hopes. It is a paradox, a cruel juxtapositioning of the haves against the have-nots. It is a suburb with no buffer zones, no trigger warning to alert you that your opulence is only a few steps away from my poverty. Maboning is the new apartheid, where the fat wallet is the new dumpers, where exclusion is not by colour, but by class. Money talks and the poor walk in Maboneng. Dear Maboneng security guard, allow me to introduce myself. I am the reality you return to at the end of your shift. The nostalgia you try in vain to suppress.
2: Countifully, one liberge gum, bunnaby art. Son kissing molly, one liberge gum, bunnaby art. Son kissing molly, one liberge gum, bunnaby art. Labantu, son kissing molly,
1: one liberge gum, When they told us that gentrification was about. Cleaning up, we did not realize that we were the dirt, that our lives would be uprooted along with the weeds, that our memories and our culture were part of the old furniture that needed to be thrown away. We wondered silently why words like privatization and modernization sounded so similar to colonization. And when they told us that rejuvenation was about breathing new life into the city, we did not realize that we were the cancer that needed to be removed. If Maboneng is the place of light, then my poverty must be the darkness. Batsik shin-chille, et choozi.
2: Batsik shubile, et choozi. Batsik shin-chille. Bangli ben bang, jengam, bangli bi at. Son kesi molile. Bangli ben jengam, bangli bi at. La Bangli ben jengam, bangli at.
0: <laughs> Redeeming syllables paint a picture of of a current reality, to try to unearth uh, some of the the challenges that we face. It's what Jeremiah is doing. I'll read verse 6 again. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. This reveals how faithless the people of Israel had become where God had always been their source of provision, they now turned to their former masters, Egypt, and their captors, Assyria, for provision. Where once they had looked to God for everything that they needed, they now find themselves looking to their former captors, to their former masters, where they had once experienced manna from heaven. Manna from heaven. They're turning now to Egypt and to Assyria for provision. Verse 8 tells us that they were actually worse than slaves. They were worse than slaves because the the current slaves were now ruling over them. Verse 8 says, slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from this land. Guys, it's bad. We're not just slaves. We're the slaves of slaves. We were once free. Children of God but now we are slaves of slaves. But what I want us to know this morning, that this is us. As we read these words, don't just go, okay, these are some people thousands of years ago. No, this is us. This is us. Because we voluntarily enslave ourselves to money, sex, success, food, comfort, relationships, education. The list goes on and on and on. We voluntarily do this. We do this believing that these things will provide for us. See, we don't trust God for our daily provision. We may say it, and so we say one thing with our mouth, but our heart is saying something completely different. Our hearts are looking, or our hearts are looking to, to food and to money and to accolades, to titles, because we're saying, in them we will find our provision, no longer in God. Now, I'm not saying that money or sex or success or food or comfort or relationships or education are bad things. I've never said that. But what I am saying is that when we look to these things for life, for meaning, for purpose, and not to God, we become idolaters. That's who we become. And so we enslave ourselves to these things. When our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus... See, for many of us, and I'm not throwing any punches because I include myself in this, we will quote Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We say it all the time. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But we hardly live this way. We hardly live this way. So, So maybe what we're trying to say is, seek the kingdom of my desires and my wants and God will sign at the bottom and then give me life. Because that's how we live. We sit down and we're like, this is what I believe I need. This is what I want. These are my desires. You write the whole thing out and then you show up and you're like, okay, God, could you just sign here on the bottom and then make sure that it happens? And then we cover it up with, but I'm seeking first the kingdom. Look, I took it to God, right? This kind of living will always, 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 like those in Jerusalem, will always leave us in ruins. And it's hard for us to see it as middle-class South Africans. Because in our minds when we go, no, but I'm not in ruins because I still have my job and I still have my degrees and I still have my house and I still have my two cars, I still have my medical aid. So so I don't quite get it. But actually, emotionally, We're in ruins. Spiritually, we're in ruins. Relationally, we're in ruins. And then we just cover it up with all these things that we have. Or how I wish that we would see ourselves the way God sees us. Pursuing all these different things, hoping to find life and meaning in them, where they always leave us in ruins. And though you may find temporary happiness in them, You will not find lasting joy. You will not find lasting joy. And there is a difference. There is a difference. Let me quote C.S. Lewis, because he writes it so beautifully in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. And then he ends by saying, we are too... We are far too easily pleased. We're those kids, we're those kids playing with these mud pies in the backyard, in the corner there somewhere, not knowing that what's been offered to us is a holiday at the sea where you can build the most beautiful sand castle. But we've settled. We've believed the lie. And this is our result. We are left in ruins. Let me go on, verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Now, before some of y'all freak out, right? Because many of you will, upon hearing this, you'll be like, some will go, I knew it. I knew it. You're responsible for the sins of your father. There it is in the text. While the other half will be like, no, hold on, I I see that verse, but I... I I wasn't there. How could he say that? I I wasn't there. The sins of our fathers. So I can't be held responsible for that. Surely not. And so we have these two camps when we read that. And so I want to say to both camps that you're both correct. You're both correct. We are responsible for the sins of those who've gone before us, but at the same time, we are responsible for our own sins. Jeremiah says that. If we were to jump to verse 16, hear what he says about their own sin, right? He communicates that our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. But then listen to what he says about their own sin in verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For we have sinned. We can see clearly that Jeremiah takes full ownership for their sins. So he's not blaming previous generations for their sins and their current destruction, their current reality. He's not blaming them fully. But what he is lamenting is the full weight of generations and generations of sin that have now come to this this full reality that they now find themselves in. He's lamenting over that. See, God has been patient and slow to anger, but now he's addressing this offense. This treason that his people have committed against him. And while some may cry out that that's not fair, we weren't there. This reality reminds us that we are deeply connected. This is something that we say every Sunday when we gather. At the end, we close in a benediction and we take arms to remind us that we are deeply connected connected. This is why Jeremiah laments of the sins of those who have gone before him. We are deeply connected. And so what you do will have an impact, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Your sin isn't just your sin. Its implications can be and often are communal. That's why we have to speak out against this This. This false narrative that's out there that's like, well, listen, I'm I'm doing my own thing. When I sin, it's just me, so leave me alone. Don't bother me. Don't don't tell me that I need to repent. I'm doing my own thing. I'm not bothering anyone. That's not true. That's not true. Your personal sin will have communal implications because we are wired for fellowship. We are made for community. And if you don't believe those words, then look at history. Because history has proven this over and over again. That we sit in a lot of just tough realities because of those who have gone before us and made really bad decisions. We are deeply connected, and so we lament. We lament our own sins, but we lament the sins of those who have gone before us. But let's keep reading. Verse nine we get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. See, provisions are now limited. They are now limited, and so they have to go search for their food in the dangerous wilderness. So if you want food, there are two choices. If you are hungry, there's only two choices. Death in the wilderness or starvation in the city. Death in the wilderness or starvation in the city. And so this results in this great famine that they are now experiencing. Guys, things are bad. Things are really, really bad. But it gets worse. It gets worse. Verse 11, women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah Princes are hung by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. What Jeremiah is writing is that within the very walls that were there to protect them, right, the city had this amazing wall. And so so once upon a time, these walls were there to protect them. The young and the old are now suffering dishonor and disgrace. If the walls could speak, if the walls could speak, the stories they would tell of this city that once existed, this great city and these walls offering protection to these people and they were flourishing and thriving but now are in ruins and and women are being raped and taken advantage of and princes are now being hung. If these walls could speak, the stories they would tell If places could speak. I wonder what stories they would tell. If places could speak. (Sings)
2: Lina <Sings> Kiarata, onama la Koloi, Koloi a Elia, Koloi a Elia, Lina Kiarata. La
1: Divulge the sufferings experienced within their borders the planet earth would cringe at the recollection of the flood of waters when throne rooms and living rooms became impromptu baptistries to cleanse away the pretentious differences between the crowned and the rest of the crowd europe struggles with concentration as thoughts of extermination camp around her mind no amount of monuments can feel the hollow caused. By the millions of her children who literally went up in smoke, she does not know whether she can ever be able to pay her dues. The cotton fields in America resonate with the sound of Negro spirituals, songs for emotional upliftment by day and lyrical maps through the Underground Railroad. By night, the southern trees exchange stories of their strange fruit. They reminisce about burning crosses used to light up the path. In KK case the unwanted foreigners needed help to find their way back home, Africa. Sits her grandchildren around the fire. Accompanied by the beat of the drum, her words paint bloody pictures as she relives the horrors of Hutu versus Tuti, where a man's right to continue breathing was determined by the size of his nose, Johannesburg. Like a celebrity helplessly hooked on drugs, she curses the day when her golden talents were discovered. When men left their wives and children in the vain hope of seeing the light at the end of the mining tunnel, men who were always striking gold but never becoming rich like a skilled seductress Johannesburg has left broken families in her path. She has reduced dignified heads of homes into hostile housemates and sent them home with retirement packages that are little more than expanded vocabularies to describe their new identities with words like silicosis, tuberculosis, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. But these are minor problems. We've got bigger issues to worry about. Some townships still mourn the deaths of their sons the black apartheid era policemen who wrestled with their consciences until their hearts grew as hard as the tires around their neck laced with enough petrol to reduce their hair history and hopes into a heap of ashes. My fatherless childhood home will tell you how proud she is that I have become something of a man, but she does not know That when I went to play at my friends' homes, I had to scrounge free lessons on manhood by stealing glances at their fathers' men who had no idea that their homes were doubling as life-orientation classrooms. I wonder, would they have prepared better lessons for me had they known that I was taking notes? I
2: wonder. Onamela Koloi mela Elia, color Elia, llena qui a ratha mangelori. Tabengia
1: If places could speak and divulge some of the sufferings experienced within their borders. The beautiful Garden of Eden would cower in shame at the thought that she was the place where it all began. And the ugly hill of Golgotha still cannot fully fathom why the sun refused to shine or why the Son of God was buried in a burrowed tomb. Nonetheless, she rejoices that she was the place where all the sufferings of his people began to end.
0: places could speak if walls could speak the stories that they would tell Jeremiah says that women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah, princes are hung up by their hands, no respect is shown to the elders this is too much or at least that's how I felt when I was preparing this I felt like I couldn't go on I didn't want to hear more This seems harsh and cruel on God's part. Now before we go down the road of thinking that God is cruel and loving and vindictive, it's important to note that our God is not above pain and suffering and dishonor and disgrace. We must stop there quickly and remember that He's not above all of this. See, the the people were being punished for their sin. But God was also being punished for their sin. See, these were not the last princes of Israel to suffer in this way. The one true prince of Israel, in fact the prince of prince, Jesus Christ would suffer in a similar way, hung in dishonor and disgrace. Like in verse 7, he would suffer for the sins of his fathers. Like in verse 13, he would stagger under a load of wood. God did not stand at a distance. He he was not detached from his people's suffering. And this is what separates Christianity from any other religion, is that God engages. He steps in. He intervenes. Verse 14, the old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. See, the young men had left their instruments for hard manual labor. Israel's music is gone. Its culture is gone. See, if you want to annihilate a people group, you take from them their culture, their stories and history. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. See, here here lies genuine confession. Here lies genuine confession. This journey of honesty, honesty about their reality, honesty about their sins have now led them to genuine repentance. For we have sinned. Let's stop looking to all these different things and different people and and finding blame elsewhere. We have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. Mount Zion was where God's temple sat, the physical place that represented God's presence to his people. But it now lies desolate, littered with jackals. What are jackals? They're opportunistic scavengers. That's who's now taken over. What does this all mean? We read this and and we should ask the question, what what does this all mean? God is gone. God is not present. Or so it seems. Look how Jeremiah ends the book of Lamentations. Notice how he, he wraps it all together. Verse 19, but you O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Jeremiah concludes the book of Lamentations with a paradoxical statement. With a paradoxical statement, he, he says, even though it looks like your temple has been abandoned, it appears that no one is at home. Jeremiah says that you are still on your throne. You are still on your throne. See, if we were to search the Scriptures, we would find uh, verse after verse after verse that says that, that the throne of God is immovable. The throne of God is immovable. And so that should tell us that God hasn't left. He hasn't been evicted. And so maybe, maybe then he's just rejected us. Maybe he is present and he is seated on his throne, but he's just rejected us. See, the book of Lamentations ends with the poet wondering if that's what's happened. Has God utterly rejected us? Has God tapped out? Has His anger filled Him so much that He just can't deal? It has us turning the pages because the book just ends. It ends with silence. I mean, the way you read it, you'd want to go, No, hold on, there must be Lamentations chapter 6, surely Like, where's the happy ending? The book just ends. Silence. We are left to deal with the reality of God's silence in this situation. You see, in the the last few weeks, we've seen Israel's grief. We've seen the cause of Israel's grief. We've seen a statement of hope. We've seen a prayer of repentance. And now a petition to the Lord. Restore us. And then silence. See, some theologians argue that maybe that's how a season of lamenting should end. That we cry out to God and, and we move through the different movements of lamenting. We, we get to this place of honesty. We, we have genuine confession. We see the idols for what they are, that they are only there to deceive us. And then we cry out to God and then silence. See, this is uncomfortable for us because many of us, we go, I want to repent and then a quick fix. God, I'm sorry, now sort it out. I see where I made a mistake. Now come through for me. But if you read most of the lamentations in the Bible, you'll see they cry out to God and then silence. In fact, that's how the Old Testament ends. It ends with 400 years of silence. God hasn't left He's still seated on his throne. He's still fully in control. He hears their cries, their prayers, but silence. I want to be clear this morning, and I feel that it's important to say this, that God's silence does not mean that God is not present or that he does not hear our prayers or that he does not hear your prayers. Some of you might have, be in that season right now where you're crying out to God and you're hearing nothing. Nothing changes. Nothing changes your life just continues, sometimes it feels like it's getting worse, I want you to know that, that God hasn't checked out. God hasn't taken a bathroom break. He's still seated on his throne and he hears you. You keep crying out to him. You keep crying out to him. And, and here's why. I'm going to step away because this is me, right? This isn't in there. This is me. This is what I think. I think that God will give us a season of silence once we've lamented and cried out to him in genuine confession and repentance because he he wants to see our lives. He wants to see our faith. Because many of us, we walk into many seasons like this where we make a mistake, we repent, God fixes it, okay, cool, then we do the same thing again. The very same thing that we, we said, God, I will never do, I will, I will never walk to that idol again. I'm trusting in you and you alone. But then the very next day, the very next hour, the very next minute, we find ourselves in ruins again. And so God goes, okay, I hear you. But let's walk a little bit in this mess together. Because I want to see if that was really genuine confession or did you just cry to me because you got caught? Silence. God has not rejected them. In fact, we know that God restored Israel. He restored them. We, we know this. And how, how do we know this? He sent them Jesus. He sent them Jesus. Jesus. See, we get to sit on this side of the cross. We know that Jeremiah's petition was answered. It was answered in Jesus, but they still had to wait. They still had to wait. Often our seasons of silence in our lament simply means that we have to wait. We have to wait on God. He hears us and He will engage us, but we must wait on Him, and this requires us to trust in Him. If we are to wait on him, then we must trust in him. This judgment, which I believe is actually discipline. I know we've navigated through this book and we've seen some of the the harsh words that God has for these people and and some of the harsh realities and we'll go, man, this, this really sounds and feels like judgment. I believe it's discipline. That this discipline that they're experiencing It's not final, it's not total, proving that God is patient and slow to anger, that he is long-suffering and that he has provided a way out through Jesus Christ. And so our choice is either we let Jesus take the full weight of the punishment that awaits us or that we reject Jesus and we wait for the punishment that is coming. Those are the choices that we are given. God's complete, final, and total judgment is coming. For those who do not turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. See, Jesus in his perfect life and death and burial and resurrection accomplished our restoration. And so we anchor our hope in that. And in that alone, we hold on to Christ until he returns where he will make all things new. And so when Jeremiah says, restore us, God says, I send Jesus for that reconciliation to happen. But where he asks, have you rejected us? That is still coming for those who will not turn to Christ. God is still engaged. And so when we lament, when we cry out because of the injustice and the brokenness and the pain and the suffering that we experience, we lament and then we wait on him by trusting in him because he has promised to come and make all things new again. And the faith that he has given us will allow us to persevere till the end. The faith that he has given us will allow us to persevere to the end. Nobody, nobody, look at me, nobody has ever walked away from their faith because of their suffering. Suffering Suffering will prove whether we truly have faith. And our faith will allow us to persevere to the end in the midst of suffering. And so we should have healthy rhythms of lamenting because it reminds us of that. Healthy rhythms of crying out to God because it reminds us that He has not rejected us and that He is restoring us as He is reconciling us back to Himself through Jesus Christ let's pray and so Lord we we come I don't really know I don't really know what I'm feeling because I read article after article because I I watch what's happening in the news because of maybe even personal relationships where there's there's challenges and and frustrations and I just I just don't know I don't know. It leaves me in this tension of I don't know. The tension that I believe Jeremiah experienced as he looked to the city, this once flourishing city, the city that was filled with men and women who loved you dearly. And now sees pain. Frustration and confusion. It's Brothers who loved one another are now at war with one another. Where sisters trusted one another now there's conflict and mistrust. Where fathers were present and loved their families well we see fatherless generations. Father I don't know I don't know what to do. My intellect is not enough. My resources aren't enough. My connections aren't enough. And so I'm left looking to the heavens and crying out to you. And as I do that, I'm realizing that I too am sinful. That I too am in desperate need of you. That I am not perfect. Though my positional standing is one of victory because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I am not perfect. I'm in desperate need of you. And so, Lord, as we transition now into taking communion together, my prayer is that it would act as a reminder that you have not rejected us. Many of us walked in here hopeless. Sure, we got a smile on our faces, and we know what to tell people. We know what to say, the right stuff. But, God, you know what's happening inside. We are broken and in desperate need of you. And so the table, the table is a reminder that you have not rejected us, that you have not left us, that you are still in control. And that the faith that you have given us will allow us to persevere to the end, that we will remain steadfast. And so Lord, as we come to the table, I pray that we would reflect would look to you and reflect and ask ourselves where, where are we in light of our relationship with you for those who have crossed the line of faith maybe maybe because of the challenges that we have been experiencing we, we've grown distant and, and, and we feel like you are not near when in reality it's us who have walked away so my hope is that they would come back to you again like the prodigal son running into the arms of a loving father but then maybe there are some here who haven't made that decision, they haven't crossed the line of faith, maybe they're sitting on the fence, maybe they showed up this morning wondering, wondering if there is a God and if he hears us. Lord, I ask that you would meet them where they are. That they would make a decision to let go of whatever they're trusting and hoping to find life in and say, God, I want to hold on to you. As I wait on you, I want to trust in you. And so in the same way, that Jesus, you led the first, the first communion. You took the bread and you lifted it up and you gave thanks. And you said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You then took the cup and gave thanks. And you said, this, this is the blood of the new covenant. Take this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we do the same. We do the same.